Okay, so I think it's fine. I'm going to stop. Okay, hold on. Okay. So, well. <laughs> okay, so w- listeners, welcome to our first episode of Big Girls Don't Crime, a fun and flirty little true crime podcast brought to you by two best friends, Kate and Sophie. So we're going to talk about ourselves separately and then talk about ourselves as an entity together as one connected by our freaky ribs so people aren't gonna know what that is but it's fine because like it's it's if you know us you know what we're talking about if you don't then um whatever (laughs) so anyway my name's Kate I'm 22 um I live in DC and um I've always been obsessed with true crime love it so much I spend most of my time watching a true crime docuseries or listening to a true crime podcast. So I thought, why wouldn't we just make one? Um, and like my first true crime case was Madeline McCann. I remember it so well still, like, like getting all those news updates, you know, on the TV in my kitchen. Um, and I honestly, the parents still really sketched me out on that entire case. And I feel like me and Sophie really, I think that's one case that me and Sophie don't really I don't think we'll ever agree on perhaps. No, no. To clarify, it's not that I disagree with what Kate thinks it's just that I am not as gung-ho passionate like arrest the parents right now as Kate is and in her mind that is basically me saying that I disagree so anyways so my name is Sophie um I am 23 I live in Houston Texas now just moved here um, so if you have any good recs for things to do in Houston, please <laughs> send us a DM. Um, Big Girls Don't Crime podcast yeah. on Insta. Um, let's see what else. Oh, so I have always kind of been interested in like mysteries or, um, I guess like true crime in a sense. Uh, one of the things that Kate and I do disagree on, um, that we actually disagree on is she kind of likes the unsolved Cases. Oh, true. I was like, what? And I absolutely love the cases where you, like, find out at the end who did it. Um, so we would always kind of fight over, like, which ones we would listen to. But anyways. Remember? So, wait, remember? Do you remember this when we were in Jordan? I used to um, I used to literally read us a case a night. Do you remember that on Wikipedia? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kate really Wikipedia cases and read them to us to follow us. So anyways. we are not well. Um. So my first probably, though, like, real case that got me interested was the HBO documentary called um, The Jinx. And it's all about Robert Durst, which, if you don't know who that is, absolutely do some Googling. Watch that HBO documentary. It's really interesting. Um, And so ever since seeing that, I've kind of been really interested in true crime. Um, And I guess as... Kate and I as an entity. Um, so we are friends from abroad. We both studied abroad in Amman, Jordan, um, where there's limited Wi-Fi. So it's not really like other, I mean, probably what you're used to, which is like everywhere now has free Wi-Fi. Um, there wasn't really many opportunities to access the Wi-Fi. You had to use your – oh, my God, don't even – the one place that um, did have free Wi-Fi gave me food poisoning <laughs> – so, because we had limited Wi-Fi, whenever we did have access to Wi-Fi, we would just download a ton of true crime podcasts and on Spotify, and that's what we would do. 
um, in our free time is we would literally just lay. So we shared a room too. Um, we were literally a foot beds were like foot apart. So we would lay in bed. Not and just even. I feel like it was less than a foot apart. I don't think we could really stand in between no. our beds. But we could hold we hands without to, stretching. Yeah. In bed. Yeah. So we would listen to true crime together. Um, and that's just how our friendship kind of blossomed, I guess. And so we decided that we were going to do a joint podcast. Um, and Okay, so basically from being a little true crime crazy person, me and Sophie – like watch them all watch docuseries all the time we listen to the podcasts and most of the time those like the cases that are covered in those docuseries or those podcasts are mainly about a very similar demographic which is usually a white woman and there is actually a media term or a psychological term apparently I found this on wikipedia called white woman syndrome and it's basically how the media just um focuses mainly on a missing white woman or a murdered white woman and so what we're trying to do with our podcast is actually bring more attention into cases that didn't receive enough attention due to the victims, race, religion, nationality, ethnicity, citizenship status, um, sexual orientation, gender orientation, class status, profession as well, et cetera. Um, and also I am really interested in wrongful conviction cases. I don't know why, but like that's something that really gets to me. Um, so we also want to focus on those as well. So with that being said, this is our third time recording this podcast because the first time I wasn't recording Sophie's voice, the second time I wasn't recording my own voice. Um, so now we figured it out and we're recording each both of our voices. So um, our apologies that our reactions might not be the same as the first one, but we've lost them. Oh, also another little disclaimer, just so you guys know. Um, so Kate does all of the research for these episodes. Um, so shout out to Kate for just being awesome and putting in a lot more time than I am. She's, she's a queen. Um, but that being said, I have never read any of these cases or seen any of this information before. So bear with me. Um, this is going to be as authentic as it gets in terms of my reaction. Um, and then one last disclaimer before we jump into it, we absolutely will be swearing, um, given the fact that it will be my pure and most authentic reaction. I will probably be cursing a good amount. So if you have any young listeners um, in the room with you, I would just keep that in mind. Um, also, a trigger warning, we'll be talking about some pretty bloody and brutal stuff. Um, so if you think that topics ranging from abuse, violence, um, sexual assault, rape, etc. Um, things of that nature will upset you, then we just recommend that you even caution when listening to this because it can be triggering. And with that, Kate, you want to start Let's us off? Let's do it. For the third, <laughs> third time. So today we're going to talk about the possible innocence and wrongful conviction of Purvis Tyrone Payne, who was accused of murdering Sharice Christopher, even though, okay, period, uh, even though this episode is going to be about pain and question, the question of his conviction and innocence, it's still important to give a voice to the victim. So we're going to start with the murder of her and her young daughter, then move on to Purvis's account of the day, then move on to where we are today with Purvis's case. Um, also, I'm going to tell you all where I found the inf – or not the information, but where I, like, found the name of Purvis. Basically, I was scrolling through TikTok, and on my For You page, 
this TikTok came up and it was like, oh, like if you um, are an ally or a supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement, you should know this man's name. And he was wrongfully convicted. And I was like, oh, okay, let me, let me Google him. And so I Googled him and I was like, maybe we should just focus on this on our first case because I had a different case in mind, but we're going to focus on this one. Um, also, the Innocence Project has snatched up his case. So we love the Innocence Project. We love them. But okay, so anyway, with that being said, let's get started. So Sharice Christopher was a 28-year-old single mother to two children, her two-year-old daughter, Lacey Joe, and her three-year-old son, Nicholas, who goes by Nick, according to the Impact of Murders documentary on um, ID Discovery. So we're going to go with that. Also, Wait, also when I was watching... Move your phone what? because I can hear it vibrating. Oh my God. Okay. I need to put it on Do Not Disturb then. Yeah. Okay. But... Also, when I was watching this docuseries, like, you know how, like, I was watching an ID Go, and you know how they give you, like, those commercials or whatever? Yeah. One of the commercials was, like, do you know that a quarter of a million Americans are missing one tooth? Wait, that what? (laughs) That a quarter of a million Americans are missing one tooth. Why was that relevant to this? I don't know. That was, that was just, that was the commercial that I watched when I was watching this documentary. Okay, interesting. And I just thought I would audit it. My sister's missing a tooth. Well, she's part yep. of that grouping. Cool. Okay. So Sharice is one of eight siblings, and she moved in with her sister Angie and Angie's kids when both of their marriages ended, like, nearly around the same time and pretty suddenly. So six months after moving in, Angie decided she was going to try it again with her ex-husband, and she left Sharice to live by herself. Um, so Sharice and her kids lived in Hawassi apartment complex at 4516, got it right this time, Biloxi Street in Millington, Tennessee. <laughs> Um, which was an apartment building with four units, two on the second floor and two on the ground floor, and the Christophers lived in the wa- in one of the units on the second floor. Also, um, Kate mentioned this earlier, but because we lost it, I just think it is really important to know that we are trying our best to pronounce names, places, proper nouns correctly. If we don't and if we don't <laughs> know how to pronounce it, shoot us a DM. <laughs> Otherwise, just trust us that we are really trying our best. Um, Kate looked, Kate watched a 30-minute river rafting video in Hawassi, Tennessee, trying to see if anyone would say the Hawassi River so she could learn how to pronounce it properly. And naturally, they didn't. So she just wasted 30 minutes watching a river rafting video and... And it wasn't even, like, good video quality. Like, it was, like, genuinely, like, a bad video. It had, like, 400 views, too, on YouTube. but not at all. No, they didn't even talk. It was literally just them showing their feet. And I was like, okay. It was really a big fucking waste of time. But anyway. Okay, so on Saturday, June 27th, 1987, Sharice, Lacey, and Nick left her mother, Mary Zovlonik's house, which was about two miles away from her apartment, at about 2 p.m., so after leaving Mary Zalonik's house and getting home, again, this was at around like 2 p.m., Sharice needed to put the kids down for a nap because they had been playing and hanging out with their grandma, whatever, they're young, pretty standard stuff. So Sharice puts the kids down for a nap, presumably. At about 3.10 p.m., the resident manager, who's a woman named Nancy Wilson, and she lived directly below the Christopher's apartment, So at 3.10 p.m., Nancy Wilson heard some sort of disturbance and heard Sharice screaming, get out, get out. Um, So naturally, hearing someone scream, get out, get out, 
Um, she decided to call the police and then she also heard a blood curdling scream. That was a direct quote. So she heard, get out, get out, a blood curdling scream. Nancy calls 911. Kate and I had talked about this earlier. I feel like I'm so annoyed that we did, like lost so much because we wa- lost such like good shit that we were saying. Good shit. Well, I, Kate and I were like, when do you know the scream is blood curdling? Like, when do you know to call the police if you hear a scream? Because like... I don't know. Like, I feel like if my neighbor was, like, having a disturbance, I guess it just depends. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, the description of a blood-curdling scream probably has to be pretty distinctive for it to curdle your blood and, like, for you to call the cops. But also, I feel like me and you blood-curdly scream all the time. That's true. I blood-curdly scream when there's, like, a spider in me. Exactly. Um, so I feel like uh, like the get-out, get-out probably, really, center over the edge. Is yeah. what got them. Yeah. Okay. So Nancy Wilson calls the cops and in just minutes, officer CE Owen arrives on the scene. Now it's important to note that officer CE Owen wasn't actually the officer that was assigned to the case or the, the report, the call. Um, but just because he was in close proximity to the apartment complex, when the call was made, he went in for back just to get on the scene a little bit faster. Um, and so according to CE Owen, when he arrived on the scene, he saw a black man standing at the stairwell on the second floor in a white T-shirt that was soaked in blood. And he would later on describe the man and his blood-choked sh- shirt. Choked shirt? As looking... <laughs> <laughs> he would later on describe the man as looking as though he had been, quote-unquote, sweating blood. So... Yummy. Yum. Love that description. So Owen assumed it was a domestic disturbance of some sort, and he basically asked this man, like, what's up? And according to Owen, the man said, I am the complainant. And then apparently, like, hit Owen with a weekender. And, like, when I said this earlier, Sophie was like, what the fuck is a weekender? But, like, I'm just, like, an overnight bag. And, like, they didn't say backpack, so I'm going to assume it's, like, a duffel, but also I'm not going to assume it's, like, a large duffel. I'm going to assume it's a weekender. Once we we get into a little bit later, like, the contents of the weekender, it will make sense why we're assuming it's a weekender. But continue. Yeah. So he, like, whacks him with the weekender, drops drops it drops it literally remember that highlight that and the sneakers that he was apparently hand like in his hand and he started running I like cannot speak he was running west on Biloxi street so Owen chased him but the man got away and Owen lost him in another apartment complex Owen called officer Boyd not Sophie Boyd but (laughs) Boyd so if anyone in Tennessee is named Boyd hit us up because you have a relative here in Houston. You might be my cousin. You should do the 23 and me and say. Okay. No, I don't want the government to have my DNA. Sorry. Okay, but also, like, what are they going to do with it? Like, clone me? Such a true crimer. No, what if, okay, one, what if I commit a crime in the future? Okay, well, that's your Two. own fucking fault for committing Two. a crime. How do you, what if someone uses your DNA and plant, like, what if in the future pe- the government starts planting DNA? They have but, DNA. No, so I think it. the thing is, is they don't think that they can plant, like, the spit that you sent to 23andMe. What if they stop testing DNA and they say these were the results for DNA tests and they just pull up my DNA results? Well, then you better have a fucking good-ass lawyer. Yeah, or I could just not give my DNA to any... Also, also, did you know that the Chinese government just bought... Or not the Chinese government, some 
non-US company, I can't remember what it was, I was reading about it, bought 23andMe or something. So now there's like a foreign country that has access to all of these millions of Americans' DNA. Oh, well, whatever. I don't care. So, okay, I literally just had phlegm in my throat. Okay, so Owen called Officer Boyd, as I said, and to help him, and they determined that the man must not have been hurt and the blood could not have been his because he was, like, running way too fast. Like, obviously, he was running so fast that the officers couldn't even keep up. So they decided to go back to the apartment to see, like, what's going on. So when they entered into the apartment, they saw blood all over the floor and the walls and three bodies. Oh, thank you for leaving me with the gory part. Sharice Christopher, again, keep in mind, that's the mother, was in the kitchen. Some accounts, so the accounts differ on this a little bit. Some say that she was found on her back, while others say they found her with the right side of her upper body against a wall. And then in all of the accounts, they say that her legs were fully extended um, and that the outside of one of her legs was against the back porch door. Not really quite sure what the significance of the like way her body was found in terms of its layout is, but just to give you like the information that they provide um, in a lot of the reports, that is how her body was found. Um, this is important though. They did find a highlight that people listeners highlight that they did find a used tampon near her knee. So then her two-year-old daughter, Lacey Joe was found on the kitchen floor. She had been stabbed in the chest, abdomen, the back and in her head. And the butcher knife, which is assumed to have been the murder weapon, was found left at her feet. And then just another side note, too, that was included um, in the report is that one of the kitchen drawers was partially opened. So Kate is going ahead and assuming that that (laughs) is where the police believe the knife to have come from, which, I mean, makes sense. Um, And then lastly, Nick, who, again, is the three-year-old son, was found still breathing And he was taken to, oh my God. So Kate wants me to say this part because I took French in like middle school and high school. So if I pronounce this wrong and you're French and you come after me, like, I'm sorry. Okay. I, I am not fluent, but I definitely know it better than Kate. So I'm just going to (laughs) try. Here it goes. Nick was found still breathing and he was taken to Le Bonheur Children's Hospital in Memphis. Oh, damn. Thank you. In Memphis. Um, And he had been found with a stab wound that had penetrated his entire body from his back all the way through to his front. And as a result of that wound, he had to go through seven hours of surgery and had a transfusion of 1,700 cc's of blood, which is around 400 to 500 cc's more than his entire estimated blood volume. He was in a pretty critical condition when they found him. Tests or examinations later determined that Charisse had 42 direct knife stabs and 42 defensive wounds on her arms and her hands. And they determined that all of these wounds had been caused by 41 separate thrusts of a butcher knife. So cause of death in the end was ruled a result of all 84 of these wounds, both defensive and direct stabs, um, bleeding at once. And just, this is another highlight, this kind of detail. The medical examiner said that the death probably occurred within quote unquote, maybe 30 minutes that short of a period 
of time. And one of the stab wounds Charisse endured cut her aorta. So it's kind of an interesting, I mean, right off the bat, I hear that and I'm a little confused because I would think, so let's just like review the facts real quick. <laughs> let's go through one, it. <laughs> one, she was stabbed 84 times. I don't know much about you, but at least for myself, like, I feel like 84 stab wounds, when I hear that, I think she must have bled out in, like, minutes. If you're bleeding from 84 different wounds, especially one that punctured your heart, your aorta, I'm The aorta is in the heart. It's not in the eye. (laughs) Yep, Kate thought it was in the eye, so glad we we corrected that. Um, But if you're getting stabbed in the aorta and you've been stabbed 84 times, bleeding out for 30 minutes doesn't seem like quote-unquote that short of a time, in my opinion. So that's point number one. And point number two that also raised some red flags for me is the fact that the account that we get from Nancy Wilson, who, if you guys remember, is the like apartment landlord, I guess, um, she says that she hears, get out, get out, a blood-curdling scream calls 911 and within two minutes or so of placing that call there's already an officer on the scene so I don't know how they could have arrived on the scene two minutes after hearing Sharice alive supposed last calls for help and then by the time they get there Sharice is dead but it's been 30 minutes they see the person like running so like that's a big confusion there's a lot of like weird yeah there's some like weird discrepancies or something fishy and odd is going on but we'll come back to that in the show later so Lacey was stabbed nine times and Nick was stabbed 12 times so the medical examiner said Sharice was on her period and specimen from her vagina tested positive for acid wait I'm acid. so sorry to interrupt you but you did just say specimen 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 redo it redo that Okay, let me redo it. Medical examiner said Sharice was on her period and specimen from her vagina to a positive for acid. Okay, so I'm going to read this line because Kate has like phosphatos <laughs> seven words in it weirdly. So I'm just going to interject really quickly and then we'll send it back to Kate. Medical examiner said that Sharice was on her period. Specimen from her vagina tested positive for acid phosphatase, which is consistent with the presence of semen, but it's not conclusive. So basically means sperm was absent and that they weren't able to find any sperm, but they were able to find acid phosphatase, which is indicative that there had been semen or sperm or something of that sort. Again, we're not scientists. No, we're not in any way, shape, or form. So highlight that though. So now we're going to go POV, your purvis pain on Saturday, June 27th in 1987. So Purvis at the time was a 20-year-old black man, and he grew up in the Pentecostal church, and his father, Carl Payne, was a minister. His family was, like, extremely religious, and his sister, Rolanda Payne, said that they were not allowed to listen to secular music. So, assuming they were listening to gospels and hymns, according to Sophie Hymnals, I don't know, but if you're religious, hit us up. Um, okay, and also, like, side note, which, like, I thought was, like, really sweet and cute, was that Rolanda called Purvis Bubba, and I just thought that was, like, really cute, so I wanted to add that in there. Also, like, if we're calling him Bubba, like, he's probably, I don't know, like, a nice, gentle, kind person. Yeah. I wouldn't ever call someone that, like, I would think or suspect would ever be able to do, like, a heinous, violent crime Bubba. 
So, at the time of the murders, Purvis and his father had a painting business that they started. And I think it's important to note that, like, immediately that Purvis has an intellectual disability. Highlight this. But anyway. So, can we talk about really quickly, though, like, what is meant by intellectual disability? Because it's not, like, I'm used to the term... I don't know if this is just like what it was called back then, or maybe if this is like a new, more politically correct term that's used now, but I'm used to hearing like mental disability or like mentally disabled. Okay. So here's the thing. So disclaimer, me and Sophie are very politically correct people. And so we try very, very hard to be using politically correct terms. However, I don't think either of us are as educated on a topic as such that we should be. So if we're saying something wrong, let us know. So basically what I understood from this is they said this in the notes that he has an intellectual disability and it is like problems with learning, I guess. So it's like a learning disability more so. That makes, we'll go into the next point. Well, no, when we get to the trial, it it will come back. And I think it will make a little bit more sense. It will tie all in together. So although his teachers say that he did his best, he wasn't able to graduate school. And so they don't specify which school, but I'm going to assume with context clues that it was high school. (laughs) I'm using, what is it, inductive reasoning and context clues to assume that it's high school. Nice. Um, Okay, so he had trouble learning to read and spell and do like mathematics. And he has trouble following complicated, in directions and instructions and he has a lot of trouble driving to new places that he like he's not aware of um so obviously we're not clinical psychologists or psychologists in general but I'm going to assume that there's some sort of dyslexia involved in there mm-hmm. what makes you those are like all um dyslexia like um symptoms or symptoms not symptoms but like indicative of yeah okay Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. And so also his family said that he needed help feeding himself until he was five. Yeah. See that for me is a big, like, again, not a doctor. Don't really know. Like I do have a younger sister who is eight years younger than me. And so I kind of watched her grow up and I remember she did not need help feeding herself up until she was five. Like that seems to me pretty indicative of some sort of disability. That's interesting. I'm sure that'll be relevant later. Yeah. So at the time, um, Purvis was dating a single mother named Bobby Thomas, and she had three children. They had actually met at church. Um, Bobby had been going through some marital problems with her abusive ex-husband. And so I guess she was probably in a pretty, pretty tough, dark time in her life. And the fact that they met at church is actually pretty cute. I know, isn't it? Also, she said, like, I didn't add this in, that, that, like, her children were, like, really, like, upset and, like, I guess, like, depressed or whatever, like, when she ended her marriage with her husband and when they were going through all these problems, and that Purvis treated her kids so well that they, like, got back to their normal selves of being, like, happy. Oh. I know, isn't that cute? That's interesting in this case, too, given the state that Lacey, Joe, and Nick were found in. But anyways, moving on. Um, On Saturday, June 27th, 1987, again, this is the day of the murder, um, Bobby was returning to Millington after a week-long out-of-town trip visiting her mother in Arkansas. So Bobby also lived in the Hiwassi apartment complex. It was Hiwassi? Hiwassi? Hiwassi. Hiwassi, I think. I don't know, that's what Google Translate said, Hawassi. Because, you know, you can put it on Google Translate and it will, like, speak for you. Yeah, we did that. 
So Bobby lived in the Hawassi apartments on 4516 Biloxi Street. If you will remember, that is where Sharif lived. And they actually, Bobby actually lived on the second floor unit right across from Sharif's apartment. So that day, Purvis Payne had been visiting or had visited the apartment complex several times. He was supposed to be meeting Bobby when she got back from her mother's in Arkansas. So he had gone several times to the apartment, but every time he got there, he would try to get in and the door would be locked. Bobby hadn't gotten home yet. Um, And so when he discovered that no one was home, he would just leave again. Like, I guess he was just dropping in. Um, Kate and I had mentioned they didn't have cell phones back then, so he probably had no way of knowing when she had returned from drive. Also, she was driving from a state over, so it's not like it was, like, a short... Wait, have we concluded that it was a state over? Well, it was in Arkansas. Like, our... Yeah, but Arkansas and Tennessee. Well, like they weren't in the same. She wasn't in the same state as basically. So like she was driving from out of state. So she was returning from out of state. They didn't have cell phones. Like, I guess for us, we'd be like, oh, kind of weird. He's just like going and leaving and going and leaving. But probably back then in the times, like no way of communicating. I guess it's not that absurd or like outlandish to think that he's dropping in. And like with Find My Friends Now or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So it's not that crazy that he was showing up with discover that Noel's home and then leave again. Um, but he was bringing with him this weekender that we had mentioned earlier. Um, and that bag was filled with a few shirts. Um, in particular, they mentioned that one of the shirts was blue and some other things that he would need to stay the night. So didn't really clarify what those are, but I'm assuming it's like a toothbrush or whatever you bring when you're sleeping over at someone else's. Um, so he, actually ended up leaving his bag in the hallway um, as well as a bag with three malt liquor cans. Not really quite sure what the relevance of that was in terms of the reporting. Why, Kate, you want to talk about that a little? Yeah. So, well, okay. So this is the thing though. It's like, I didn't really find this in his testimony necessarily or his account of the day. Like it's just important. It's a little highlight that we should come back to when we get to the prosecution side of the day and everything like that. And like the evidence, because it is important later on. Because they say three malt liquor cans. So remember the number three. Okay. So keep that in mind. Okay. So he left his bag in the hallway as well as a bag with three malt liquor cans. And again, if you're going to and from, you probably don't want to bring this bag with you and back. Like if it's your girlfriend's apartment, like leaving it outside the door, not something I personally would do, <laughs> but again, not like the most absurd, like instantly red flag type of thing. You know what thing. I just thought of? What? When you left that silver bag on the table. I can't even. I knew you were going to say that. We visited Bob and I, I bought this like beautiful, like genuine leather silver wallet. And I was so excited. And it actually like kind of cost a pretty penny. Yeah, it did. It was expensive. And our good friend. Trey Fields, I hate that he's being featured in this. Wait, also, when I, like, followed him on Instagram or whatever, he was like, can I have, like, my own segment on the podcast? Like, and now let's see what Trey thinks. And I was like, no, absolutely not. I literally couldn't care less what Trey thinks. Anyways, Trey threw it out. So (laughs) he accidentally threw it out. My Lebanese. And then claimed it wasn't him who threw it out. Oh, and then tried to say that, like, the cleaning people came and did it. Meanwhile, we were staying in, like, the jankiest Airbnb hotel situation ever. And I was like, this apartment hasn't seen a professional cleaner in many. So, many nice moves. try. 
many moons. Anyways, so again, not something I personally would do, but it's not anything to indicate that he was like acting unusual. Okay, so at around 3 p.m., he thought he would go back to the apartments again to see if Bobby was there or not. So on his way there, he stopped at his friend Ruth Wakefield Bell's house to see if he could hang out with her until Bobby came home. And she lived near the Hawassi apartment, so I pretty sure it wasn't that far of a trek for him. And so Ruth was in the house and she saw Purvis from a window and like, I can't remember if it was a bedroom or a bathroom window, so sorry. Um, and she was upset with her boyfriend, and so she didn't feel like entertaining anyone, so she didn't let Purvis in, but she also didn't notice anything unusual about his behavior. So um, when she didn't let him in, he went back to the apartments to snatch his bag, and he planned to go to Sharon Nathaniel's house, which was his ex-girlfriend, to wait for Bobby's arrival. So when he was arriving Wait, to the... Sorry, you went to his ex-girlfriend? Yes. I'm not going to lie. If, like, I wasn't home and I had been out of town for a week and my boyfriend was like, let me just go by my ex-girlfriend's house to, like, hang out there, I would be... I mean, there would be problems. There would be many arguments that would ensue after that. I would be pissed. So this is just a heads up to our listeners if one of them is Sophie's future boyfriend. Um, if you are ever awaiting Sophie's arrival from out of town, please do not go to your ex-girlfriend's house because there will be hell to pay by none other than Sophie Boyd. So when he was arriving to the apartments, Purvis, not Sophie's boyfriend, Purvis, when he was arriving to the apartments, he saw a man... And one account said that Purvis said that the man was a black was a black man, but that was the only account that said that. So I thought I would add it in, but I don't know. Whatever, a man. Um. So and this man ran past him, covered in blood, and the man was wearing a white tropical shirt that was longer than his shorts. And as he was running, papers and change were falling out of his pockets. And another eyewitness claimed to have seen this as well. So Purvis snatches the papers, puts them in his pocket, and walks back up to the. And walks yeah, back. Other thing, well, just the fact that he like picks up papers that he like someone runs past him and like drops papers. I don't know. That seems a little odd to me. Again, not something I would do. <laughs> but also, like if you think about it, it's like 1987. Like the times weren't with the crime, crimey times that we're in now. Yeah, true. So just a disclaimer, guys. If you ever see somebody running past you with blood, um, don't pick up the papers or anything that falls out of their pocket. Purvis, like I said, snatches the papers, puts them in his pocket, and walks back up to the second floor. And so he hears a baby crying and a faint help me coming from the Christopher's apartment, and their door was ajar. And so he announces he's coming in, and he came in and he saw the scene that we described earlier, but he says that the knife was actually coming out of Sharice's throat, and that her hand was on it, like, trying to take it out of her throat. Could you imagine, though, like, I'm just thinking about it, could you imagine that you're a mother and you, your two children and yourself have just been stabbed and you're still alive, like, watching your children, like, scream out in pain? I can't. I can't. Like, how horrible is that? Not, I mean, it's not a pleasant, pleasant picture. No. Okay, so Payne took out the knife from her throat and he checked on the kids and then he was like, okay, I need to go get help. So when he left to go get help, he saw the police were there and he realized that as a black man in blood leaving the apartment of a brutally attacked white woman, he would be accused as the attacker. So he fled the scene and actually went to Sharon Nathaniel's apartment. So that was, again, a little POV, your purpose pain. 